0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. A happy Cultural Debris New Year to you. It has been longer between episodes than I had intended. Back in November, I suffered from a bout of laryngitis, which I do not recommend for podcasters. Then the holiday season hit, but the good news is I have several interviews coming up and episodes to go with them. I'm excited to talk to these good folks, and I think you'll find what they have to say interesting. As I record this, Central Kentucky is under a blanket of white. It is our second snow of the month it looks like we may be in for an active winter over the next few weeks. I do enjoy a bit of snow, but I'm also looking forward to seeing all of my fall bulb plantings popping up some flowers soon. Winter cold does usually prompt thoughts of warm sun. And I have an exciting cultural debris project in the works. The very first cultural debris excursion. Would you be interested in joining me on a trip to Genoa? This curated fall trip would explore cultural sites off the beaten path, extraordinary food, and thoughtful conversation focused on some carefully selected, but light, readings designed to complement our explorations. It would be a trip like nothing else you've experienced. I'll have more details soon, but if you are interested, you can email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. To hear those details first, this will be a very small and select group, so don't miss out. Our poem is from Wendell Berry, a Sabbath poem from 2003. The woods is white with snow, the shy birds come and go, between feeder and trees, titmice and chickadees, by right of flight survive, I by the heavy stove. Please take a moment to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and also Spotify now allows ratings. Whatever platform you choose and are listening through, it's a big help to leave a top rating so others might hear about the podcast. This episode's guest is the author of the new book, Swan Songs, Souvenirs of Paris Elegance. He writes under the pseudonym of Reginald Jerome Demands. In the book, he chronicles the end of old Parisian clothing institutions, shops and clothiers that sold luxurious wares for a century and longer, but the world seemingly passed them by. He also writes about a few who remain. But for how long? Reginald, Jerome, and I have been internet friends for going on two decades now, beginning years ago on internet clothing forums. We've even had the chance to see each other face-to-face in person a couple of times. We discuss lost shops, lost skills, and in many ways a lost world. And be sure to stick around for the end, where he discusses his own desire to write and be published and the process, at times painful, that brought about this book. Reginald Jerome
1: Demands,
0: welcome to Cultural Debris.
1: Thank you so much. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here.
0: You are um, a bit of a man of mystery. You've you've written this new book, but under a, under this nom de plume, you have called the book Swan Songs. And in writing the book, you start off in the introduction and you start with two objects. And of course, it's really uh, a lot of it is built around objects, uh, pieces of clothing and, and so forth. But you start off with an overcoat and a pair of gloves. So what, what, does, what does the overcoat um, and what does the pair of gloves tell us? What, what about those items led you to the rest of the book and, and the experiences that you
1: had? Um, that's a great question, and I'm not saying that to buy for time. The overcoat, I think, has additional significance when I give it more context um, in the book textually, It was the taking on of a new identity and a different kind of dash um, that allowed me to feel like I, you know, had somehow acquired some kind of grown-up mystery. Um, And that was because it was a grown-up coat. It was dark. um, And it had this incidental licensed designer name in it. Um, that, you know, at the time as a kid, I didn't know anything about the fashion wars or, or, you know, what any particular designer had done with their business. Um, so it was a designer name. It it was cool to me and it was French. It had that additional, um, exoticism because in you know in in high schools in in the northeast of the us um the ride or die was polo um and and then you know secondarily ella labine and and the other you know the other prep outfitters um and so this just had something else to it um but at the time also I had two sartorial um, choice. I had a a sartorial choice of two. Um, It was either that coat or a a green army coat that I um, had bought from the Army Navy store and was, um, and otherwise was going to be wearing to school. Um, And that was going to be. part of a somewhat more rebellious identity i was going to be taking and instead i um in my 15 year old mind took what i thought was a more classic um route and and went dressier with this thing and it felt like a passport it felt like a you know a way of creating new identities in, in the manner that you want to do when you're a teenager, because you, you experiment with so many different selves and you generally come into your teens wanting to be someone else. um, Because so much is changing around you. In my case, um, uh, we moved around a lot when I was growing up um, and I um, was in a, you know, I was in an environment in, in the school that I was at uh, where it did not feel like a very welcoming place. It was a very judgmental place. Um, added to that as well, I think also playing a role was uh, my role as a person of color, which I don't talk about in the book because I think that, frankly, you know, that could be its own subject for a dozen other books. And there is a lot to be said there. But um i wanted to focus on writing about um these other histories rather than putting myself front and center um but certainly um coming at it from the point of view of someone who felt excluded and more of an observer at a window of so much that was around me when i was a teenager um, it felt like having the coat meant that i could do so on my own terms because it suggested that I'd somewhere else to go, that would also be interesting,
0: yeah, of course, clothing and well, I still want to talk about those gloves, but, but yes, but, yes. Clothing, <laughs> but clothing very much. I mean, you touch on a very important thing uh, is that clothing gives us uh, i mean, there's there's a an aspirational aspect obviously built into it, which is is fundamental to your book. um but uh, it is also fundamental to the marketing that we all fall victim to, that you yourself fell victim to as a 15-year-old. And I, mean, I say that <laughs> as somebody who falls victim to sure. clothing marketing all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, but we all do. We all have that aspirational uh, uh, sense about clothing that that we are creating a persona with what we wear that, that is... Uh, it, and it's not always what others perceive. It's what we perceive about ourselves, because most of the time people don't really pay attention to what we're wearing. They certainly don't know that my tie is from Charvet versus, um, you know, uh, the local mall department store. Um, Mm -hmm. but in my mind, I'm wearing this to project something about myself and that, um, really you're that, that, that's a fundamental element to the entirety of your book, I think.
1: Yeah, no, that's very right. Um, and I think essential to any, any recognition of self, any, any self-awareness in, in this world is realizing that no one's going to care about what you're wearing as much as you are um and so it's if you're going to be dressing up or dressing in any particular way, um, it it needs to have meaning to you because um, no one else really is going to care in the same way that you do. Interpret it the same way as you do. Um, so, um, you know, once, once you do that, and can put that behind you, and recognize that, then, then you can at least um, move forward without worrying about how, about whether people are going to perceive that, you know, your suits cut a certain way, that your shoes happen to be handmade, or whatnot. I mean, in the end, it's how the clothes make the wearer feel. And there's a lot more to it than, clothes that simply fit when when you start intellectualizing things the way that i that i've done in the book um it's stories it's histories and it's the emotional it's the emotional connection that you created for better or for worse with certain items certain names um irrational as it may be that that matters so much and with the gloves which you know no one no one's going to notice that someone is wearing a pair of gloves that, you know, look softer than another pair, um, with the gloves, it really was buying what felt like a badge. Um, something that, you know, something that was so ridiculous in terms of it's, um, you know, it's, it's pricing it's fanciness. Um, you know, it's, it's lack of necessity, but still happened to be without my really knowing it, something that was, um, actually irreproducible, um, today, um, because the, the place where I went to buy them back in 1993, Hermes, um, no longer, works in kid skin, at least not for gloves and, um, for whatever reason. And the leather that they used because they really are specialists in leather really was finer than, um, than anything that you can find today. And, um, they also at the time only sold things that could be made to a very high standard, um, certainly in leather goods, if not the rest of the ready to wear clothing. And so they were sewn incredibly finely. The materials they used to line it were um, incredibly soft, dense, lasting. And for years I thought this was just me idealizing the past. Um, but I had an, a, a chance to, to test that um, because a few years ago, uh, a pair of gloves in my size from Hermes um, in kid skin that, that, um, that were unworn, that had been, I guess, the back of someone's drawer for a number of years came up for auction. And I, and I bought them just to see what it was actually like. And it, it's true. I mean, the, the gloves... The gloves that I've bought from other makers since then, um, no matter how good the the kids get on the Hermes gloves, really is just um, that increment. Softer and finer and, and everything else, um, which is interesting because I'm not someone who necessarily idealizes the past, but I recognize that there are certain things that... Um, may no may no longer be accessible um, as time goes by especially things that might require um, a lot of training or specialized knowledge for which there's no longer much call so when i was beating my brain trying to figure out how on earth to introduce this book um, that's what came to mind the coat and the gloves which captured sort of the joy and then the determination to find out more that, that, that came with these, with these two pieces of clothing.
0: Well, it's, it's nice that you were vindicated on the gloves and I'm <laughs> glad to hear that you were able to replace them because I, I will. And I think I've, uh, you know, of course w- you and I have, have known each other online uh, and in person for, for many years. So I think Almost I 20 heard, years. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I that is, that is, <laughs> um, frighteningly long, but, uh, uh, in internet years, that's several centuries, I think. But, <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I think I had heard the story about the lost gloves in the past, but I had, I was unaware that you had replaced them. So that fills me with, uh, a sense of, of satisfaction because when I read in, in the, in the book, you know, of course that they, that they just disappear, uh, and, and you don't know what happened to them that, you know, it, there is that, that fellow um, uh, sort of clothing devotee sadness because I know how I would feel if that happened to me, uh, <laughs> something <laughs> surprised, and that was irreplaceable. And really, your book, your book really is about, of course, the, the title is Swan Songs. It is, in a lot of ways, about losing irreplaceable things that um, that these these stores, um, that once existed and once flourished, uh, are gone. or some may continue on, but not the way they were, that there there are certain things that are just can't can't be done. It's hard for us to process that something is, that it's, that really is not reproducible you know, because we think, well, surely somebody can make this, but in a lot of instances, I touched on the Hilditch and Key scarves, mm-hmm. those, those apparently can't be done again that way, or at least aren't. Um, and, and it would be impossible, uh, essentially, to, to, to have them, to have them done. and uh, it, it really is, you know. From of course, this is a podcast called Cultural Debris, which is why I felt like the the book was a perfect fit uh, <laughs> to talk about because uh, it really is about these these items that sometimes we acquire, you know, through vintage uh, purchases and so forth. Uh, that they they are different. That they're not something that you can simply go and get. That you have to go. Uh, to find a relic of the past in order to in order to have what was commonly or at least readily available uh, to those in the past.
1: Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, taking up on what you just said, things that were commonly and readily available in the past. I mean, that's sort of that kind of adds to the tragicomic element of you know losing those gloves because. Um, If you think about it, most people view gloves like umbrellas as kind of not just commodities, but close to disposable because of the near certainty that they're going to that they're going to be lost um, at any given time from just, you know, falling out of a pocket or being forgotten somewhere or, you know, being worn in the rain and shrinking or, or what have you. And, um, I certainly am not a person who could treat those gloves as, as, you know, forgettable commodities and simply go and replace them. Um, but what time costs of labor, um, and many other factors has done means that to go back and obtain something like that, um, that's craft made, um, that's made out of something that's been tanned so soft and so on, um, would be very, very difficult, if not impossible. If you want to have a, you know, uh, a French craftsman make you a pair of custom shoes, then you know what might have cost, say, a couple of thousand dollars 20 years ago, which again, it's very high price for shoes um, today as well as back then, but the cost of that has far outpaced um, inflation, has far outpaced real wages um, uh, increases. And, you know, now is even more stratospherically unobtainable so that the things that, you know, you may want to care about as someone who likes craft, who likes finding out about things that are made individually or that are made traditionally or that are, you know, made beautifully with with the attention and the personal touch that you want to see all of that seems like it's expanding and expanding at this sort of you know almost cosmological accelerating rate where you won't be able to afford things the same way again even if they were barely affordable now and you know that's something that i find you know just sort of watching watching how prices have evolved in the the 20 years or so that i've been in this world and you know seeing that for, for me, buying uh, a suit from Comste Luca is something that due to distance and cost and everything else is something that I save up for and the fittings are, you know, a, you know, a an, an occasion. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not just a suit. Uh, it's not something that I can take for granted um, whereas these were at one point made for a customer base of businessmen and men of a certain class who more or less could take it for granted and I guess a certain number of them still do and perhaps they'll never get the pleasure out of them that a, in a you know a fanboy like I guess myself, might having looked into them and researched them and so much else. Um, but I think one of the things that, that I think comes across in my book is that there were so many things that one could take for granted at a certain time that are becoming harder and harder to find and harder and harder to, to acquire, to, for lack of a better word.
0: You make an interesting point there that you touch on in the book. You were uh, you you mentioned, uh, for example, the Duke of uh, the Duke of Windsor, um, who, as you said, he he used uh, custom clothiers, sort of like you and I might use a drugstore. You're traveling and you need to pop in and grab something. And um, so, so for somebody like him, obviously you know, he's a, a, in a lot of ways, sort of unique example, but still. <laughs> um, for him, and he had a particular interest in clothes, you know, as clothes too. But uh, for him, but uh, uh, that sort of wealthy class, um, that a lot of that was just it. It wasn't uh, like you said for for fanboys like like <laughs> you or like me. Uh, it, this is forgive using a, the word. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. No, it's it's accurate. We need we need to have the balloon uh, deflated. Uh, at times, but, but for them, the, these weren't special clothes. They were just clothes. Now, I mean, they may have, you know, they have particular makers they like, they, you know, they understand that they're nicer clothes than, you know, the, the Hoi polloi are wearing, but it wasn't necessarily an event to purchase something like that. Um, and it seems like that, that as it became that, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that sort of traces along with what you're recording in your book, the, the loss of, of a lot of these, a lot of these skills, the closing, of a lot of these, uh, of a lot of these businesses, like, like old England, like Salka, uh, that mm-hmm. you have chapters about, uh, in your book Salka was once Salka was once simply a, uh, a, a great luxury store that, that people went to. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's where it's where they went to buy things. Like we might go to the mall, um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but there's, there was this essentially as I guess we'll say a societal breakdown or if not breakdown shift, I suppose it's how you look at it, <laughs> but there was certainly at least a shift that those kinds of business models um, weren't sustainable in the way that they were operating. And um and and with that we we lost we lost a lot we lost a lot of skill we lost a lot of of uh imagination in in clothing uh you had a quote uh, that I jotted down where you said that the the local has ceded place to the international organic charm to the manufactured and unaffordable, which really struck me in a in a way as kind of key to the whole to the whole book um That it's not so much that there aren't places to go spend extraordinary amounts of money, because there are lots of quote-unquote luxury brands that are exorbitantly priced. But there's not an old England, and there's not a sulka. Now, you do talk about Charvet, which is probably the closest to a lot of those old uh, clothiers Mm -hmm. that still seems to be thriving. I guess it's thriving. At least it exists and you can go get those things, but, but it's sort of a, to use your, your earlier term, it's sort of a unicorn among, um, among all of these, uh, these other Mm -hmm. outfits that have closed down over the years.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well said. And I think, you know, you, you point to a change in business models and, I mean, I could probably bore yours and the the ears of anyone who listens to this um, off uh, talking about or speculating about, you know, changes in the business. So I, I hope I'm not going to bore people. Um, I think what I will say is that it's, I guess, you know, trends are dynamic. And so one thing, one thing that I've been learning more about, in fact, that um, I've learned more about even since I published the book is about where the, where the group they sank, the Parisian tailors um, that, that comes to Luca ended up um, sort of leading um, and, you know, that now are are mentioned as being these um, these sort of godfathers of French tailoring. Um, and certainly that's how they were described to me when You know, I I knew nothing about French tailoring and Michael Alden was showing me around Paris. Um, You know, all of those people, they were rebels. They were trying to do something new. They were trying to set themselves apart from the classic luxury tailors in Paris um, who, you know, uh, were making suits and jackets and whatnot for for men of means um, and um, and um, who essentially have completely been replaced by Camps de luca and its successors not intentionally um, but uh, perhaps almost as coincidence and it, it's certainly ironic that Camps de Luca and the, the the other members of the Group des cinq, um, who whose successors are essentially what's left of Paris tailoring, um, are the ones now who stand for classic tailoring because uh, since then, you know, in the times that they were that they were active from the mid50s until the end of the 60s, they did catwalk shows, they tried to exhibit alongside the, the crazier women's wear designers like Kurej, who uh, was famous for doing these kind of, you know, almost Barbarella type space woman, you know, designs. And, and one of, one of the alumni of the group they Francesco Smalto um, did effectively um, spaceman designs that he showed alongside Kurej. and, um, and just like lots of just strange, wacky seasonal designs because they wanted to keep up with trends and they recognized that fashion tastes were changing. Um, even if a group like that started before things like the Beatles and all of that youth quake, um, there was an understanding that there were changes in fashion and they wanted to stay abreast of them. And then, you know, that change actually ended up you know moving past tailoring completely which is one of the reasons why the group des sank disintegrated by the end of the 60s um and anyone who's still doing classical custom tailoring in paris is pretty much um using as a selling point the aesthetic of timeless elegance because a a good custom suit is nowadays generally so expensive that you want to sell it as being something that someone can hold on to for 20 or 30 years, um, as opposed to some, you know, custom made, um, Flash Gordon style, Barbarella style outfit.
0: Thus, the, uh, the investment term you, you, uh, debunk somewhat (laughs) yeah, Yeah. in your your book. Where, but, but it, but they're they're trying to sell that idea that we can this is something yes. and, and we and we sometimes kid ourselves about that as well, right? Right.
1: Definitely. And I mean I think, you know, the only way that I've been able to get to a certain amount of contentment with my wardrobe is um, and I'm ashamed to admit this having accumulated enough daffy clothes that if there's anything that happens to catch my eye in a magazine as being an interesting trend, I probably have some old piece of clothing that is sort of, you know, resonant of that, that I can probably take out and wear anyway. Um, but you know, looking at, at the things that I wrote about, um, Fashions change all the time. And I think that there is probably going to be uh, another another seismic change just given what's happened in the world in the last two years where business outfits have been replaced by whatever people wear um, during the pandemic. And if they're teleworking, you know, God knows what they've been wearing. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that means the death of the suit it could mean that there's more that there's actually going to be an organic evolution in the materials that go into suits. It looks like now um, some designers are trying to put, trying to make suits in like stretchy sweatpants style Jersey material, for instance, or to mix and match them with um, jogging pants. Um, you know, that's uh, i I don't have anything like that in my wardrobe, but I can imagine things going in that direction, or there being simply different combinations of things worn with what otherwise passed for classic, um, classic business wear that allow people to mix and match what they currently own with clothing that reflects, you know, the lifestyle that they've had to adopt. Um, bringing that back to to what you were saying about places like Sulka, um what's interesting about somewhere like that is that for a very long time in its existence it was the place that was a little too over the top um and um if not if not groundbreaking then at least the most shameless of the luxury clothing places that you could go you could go there and get a classic you know, a classic custom shirt made for you, or, you know, whatever kind of classic pair of socks or sweaters you wanted, but you could, you could also get just ridiculous things like leopard skin gloves or, you know, vicuña bathrobes or what have you. And, um, you know, that seemed to have stopped happening by, say, the 1980s and, Silka was never really able to regain anything that would give it either an edge or an identity that set it apart um and you know part of why a brand succeeds or fails a brand a maker a shop is its product and that is animated to a certain extent by um the the business decisions of the people running it um somewhere like Silka found that most of the people wearing it in the 80s and in the 90s were um, guys who were aging and retiring, which means that they were not keeping up with whatever younger people wanted to wear. And I can't, I can't say whether that's good or bad. I know that certainly when you think of the 1980s, you do think of plenty of guys wearing suits. So it's really too bad Soka couldn't or didn't capitalize on that. Um, But after the end of the 80s, um, you know, if and having trawl lots and lots and lots of vintage, um, this has been my finding um, what they went into was stuff that people who were retired would wear um, on a golf course, which is fine if you can stay in business doing that. And uh, clearly it. It Apparently didn't work for can't. them. <laughs> I mean, you can't. And it was a big shift from what their identity had been for um, almost a century. Um, you know, and when I say stuff you wear on a golf course, I mean maybe there's there's certainly interesting clothing you can wear on a golf course, but a you know a baseball jacket that reverses from you know one drab color to another is is not really it nor is you know a really boxy coat um or you know ties that have you know motifs that are clearly kind of copying what hermes was doing um without without being you know without being completely on the nose um, so just trying to find this niche not having the inspiration not having the daring and I say all this and I talk about Silka and I talk about the 1990s because that's a time when other brands, you know, that could have died, remade themselves again for better or for worse. Certainly, I mean, I know you were there. I was there in the 1990s. You know, Burberry um, went from being uh, a brand that had probably a similar brand identity to what Silke had become as being this very staid traditional brand by that time um, to becoming a much more, you know, a much more interesting dashing brand that associated itself with a different kind of Britishness, at least than, than what it had been. Um, Gucci remade itself uh, from, you know, having been sort of this faded 1970s name or associated only with, I don't know face on the A team and his Gucci loafers from the '80s to becoming this very splashy retro sexy um, brand under under the the designs that Tom Ford made for it. Again, those those are all um, taking a big chance and and going all in on it. Um, I don't think I, I think very few people actually bought. The, the Gucci evening shoes that had monograms, S-U-C on one toe and K-N-E on the other. So that walking around, you know, they, they were an obscene proposition, um, but it it got eyes. It was, you know, it, it got column inches. Um, it was kind of humorous um, and it, it was interesting. And ultimately um, fashion seems to be about what's different and what's interesting. Um, which is why as soon as everyone is seeming to wear something, then the pendulum will swing back. Maybe that's why, you know, fashion that, you know, a few years ago had been everyone wearing suits and sometimes unfortunately tight ones um, has now swung to things that you can only wear if you're incredibly good looking um, because anyone else will look horrible in them. <laughs> well, uh,
0: fashion always benefits the good looking uh, <laughs> and uh, good because they can, because they can make they can make almost any fashion look good. It's true. I I am curious, though, you know, you t- you you focus on. Uh, establishments that have that have disappeared. Uh, you had uh, Salka, which we've talked about some um old england which uh we've not really had a chance to talk about but was kind of a favorite of mine i guess but i, I it, it leads me to charvet i guess because <laughs> it, it you call it the institution so charvet does not seem trendy at all um yet it it seems to keep plugging along uh with doing what it has always done, and I'm sure that's a superficial understanding uh, from from an outside view. But they're certainly they've certainly not radically remade themselves. So, what is it that Charvet has, or what have they done that a place like Sulco or a place like uh, Old England did not do?
1: That's a great question. Um, so, what? Really sank Old England, to my knowledge, um, and and my you know my my best take based on lots and lots of very you know boring research and and, and whatnot is that Old England was one shop on extremely extremely expensive real estate in the center of Paris. Um, essentially, on the corner of the jewelry district, um, where all of, you know, all of the famous expensive jewelers and wash shops and and whatever else um, were based, and um there was this shop that it stood in the same place for over a century, on nearly a full block that sold uh items that were inspired by... British clothing um, most of the items to my knowledge were you know um, were uh, didn't carry the old England brand so the the, the power of say a, a name like old England wasn't really based on um, say there being amazing old England branded merchandise it was instead based on what old England had brought together in this image of Englishness. So it was, in other words, simply another outlet where you could buy a British shirt or a, a shirt that looked British um, or a, a, a tie classic shoes um, and, and so on. And then with a lot of things that I think are kind of affectations like um the Fortnum and Masons teas and Christmas puddings, and and whatnot, and they even had a they had a room for Purdy shotguns, um, and Purdy clothing, um, but a lot of things that by themselves probably didn't generate the kind of sales per square foot that selling a bunch of you know, ten thousand and fifty thousand dollar watches might, and the fact that you have a shop that by itself has to support its own rent on, on, on that real estate in that city um, meant that I think a model like that is past its time. Um, Mm -hmm. The idea of the Emporium that, that simply retails that stuff. I mean, um, I think I've mentioned Flusser saying that he thought it would have been a, a great flagship for Ralph Lauren um, it would have been, and like Ralph's other flagships, it would have been buoyed by uh, the wholesale business that Ralph has, as well as the shops in in other parts of the world with cheaper real estate that that you know would help keep a brand like Ralph up. And Ralph, of course, is a billion dollar brand. Um, Old England was, you know, it was a very old and established brand with an enormous amount of heritage to it. um, That, that identity, what it actually did had changed over the years until World War II. It had been sort of a a tailor and a one-stop shop um, for all kinds of things. And then that changed and it became this clearinghouse for all things English. And um, unfortunately, the market for that dwindled, and it became easier to buy that stuff elsewhere without having to go to Old England, which, frankly, also was very expensive for what it was. I mean, I I confess I did not help it survive very much. I, you know, when I when I was when I was going there, you know, I found that their prices for Edward Green's special orders were more expensive than than um, the place that I that I usually used, and so I ended up ordering them from uh, from Leather Soul in Hawaii instead of Old England. And um, I do feel a little bad about that, but it was, you know, the difference was hundreds of euros. So, Well,
0: sure. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't survive in business long simply depending on other people j- generously giving you money so that you can stay afloat. It's, not, it's right. simply not going to, it's simply not going to work. Now, What's the one time is I visited that? there, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the, w- the one time that I visited old England, this was, when it was, I think it was already slated to close, but I mm-hmm. was in, in one of my layovers in Paris. So I made the point of going and it was, it was a beautiful shop. They had, uh, they had a lot of things I wouldn't have mind minded owning. Like they had Drake's sure. ties. They had, they had Drake's scarves, but like you said, there wasn't anything uniquely old England about them. I was like, well, I could get that Drake's tie Online somewhere, <laughs> and so so I, I ended up, and I really did feel bad about this. I ended up leaving without buying anything, and i had intention, mm-hmm. and I had intended to go in there to buy something from Old England, sure. and there wasn't anything that I felt like called to me to buy it specifically for that place. And so I, I guess I was sort of a, uh, I was an emblem of of what had happened to them because I wanted. To, to do something. I wanted to buy something that would be distinctively Old England, but, but I really couldn't find anything.
1: I know exactly what you mean, yeah. And I mean, I think it's a common phenomenon, This sort of sartorial tourism I do it when I go to other cities as well, um, where you, you want to go to somewhere that has a reputation and, and this attraction as being um, this amazing place that doesn't exist anywhere else and you come there and sometimes you end up completely nonplussed because there's nothing there that is in itself individual and unique and i think in the end old england its uniqueness was simply in bringing together a lot of a lot of things to create this simulacra of englishness out of things that in themselves were not necessarily all that interesting
0: right the, the, the items they had were wonderful, but mm-hmm. especially in the age of the Internet, mm-hmm. it's so easy to source those things. A lot of a lot of those luxury goods that they had brought together. Um, exactly. It, was, it, it is it is disappointing <laughs> that they that they did because I, I I love the idea of Old England so much um, mm-hmm. that uh, that it, it pains me. Um that it that it went away
1: you're listening to the cultural debris podcast let's talk about charvet just to just to return to that because i know you'd wanted to talk to me about that and what makes what makes them survive and let's knock on wood because you know i you know thinking about it i'm not sure how they're surviving now with i can't imagine who's actually buying you know ties and whatnot um but what they've definitely done is, you know, from the space that they were in, 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 in the beginning of the eighties, they moved to a huge um, space, basically a, a, a house on the Place Vendôme um, and had the desert flagship and it seem to be making it work through wholesaling their ties and their ready to wear shirts um, all over the world So that they're able to, um, they're, they've created a particular brand identity. They, you know, while obviously they're not a household name in the way that say Armani or even Kiton might be, um, their ties are recognizably Charvet to anyone who is familiar with them um, with unique, very delicate jewel tone patterns and weaves which they come out with by dozens every couple of weeks. It's it's really kind of shocking. Um, and that's, I think, you know, that's been key because they have a unique product. No one else really is selling ties like that. Um, you know, occasionally a small brand will come along and do something similar, but without the same kind of penetration that they have. And then they have their, their ready-to-wear shirts, Um which obviously probably can't sell in anything like the same volume because they're priced much higher, but they've been able to make themselves um, known worldwide through that kind of retail presence, because in general, you're not going to get talked about in, in newspapers or fashion magazines, unless there's a chance of um, people being able to purchase you locally um, at least before the internet and now with the internet Charvet has you know it has a presence on mr Porter it has um, a presence on the websites of some some major shops um, in addition so it's it's managed to more or less stay current although again you know I'm I'm really kind of amazed that it, seem to thrive even during the business casual era. And I'm you know, impressed that it seems to be surviving during this period as well. Um, and with, you know, with that wholesale business, they're able to support um, a, a, a custom business in shirt making that, you know, is it's the most famous custom shirt maker in Paris. Um, one of the most famous custom shirt makers in the world. And again, that's symbiotic with its retail presence because it would not get talked about um, in the media nearly as much if it weren't also available in you know, Malmaison in Singapore and Neiman Marcus and Harrods um, and so on. Um, and the shirts um, that they sell ready to wear are you know, made... More or less to the same standard as their custom and made in the same place, so it's not really a matter of having licensed their name. Um, it's that they're they're selling shirts made to a to a stock pattern that are made pretty much like their custom shirts, um, and that's you know that seems to be how custom makers can survive um, to the extent they can in 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 this changing world through creating. An identifiable brand and a an appealing and unique product that um, that people want to buy that's that's accessible, you know, geographically, financially, and so on. Um, that allows um, its its custom work that's you know difficult difficult to to fit, difficult to afford, time consuming. That allows all of that. To to continue, um, certainly it's what it's what is trying to do again, with their ready-to-wear lines, um, and and so on. And you know, I I hope that that custom makers who care about clothing and create things of beauty are able to continue, and so that they find ways to continue. One of one of my favorite uh, a shirtmaker of mine, who I, I really I really do care for, um, and who's been uh, just a, a wonderful person over the years. Um, you know, I was talking to him about concerns in the industry. He told me that you know he made shirts before he came to his current employer. He'll make them after he leaves his current employer. He's going to stay a shirtmaker um, and, you know, no matter who he works for. And so I I appreciated a determination like that because it's a difficult world out there. And, um, you know, it's, we, we all can hope that people who make beautiful things can still find a niche.
0: Yes, it is encouraging that we still see, we do still see a, a continuation of at least some of these skills. And I think that the kind of interest that has, you know, the same, the same kind of interest that you and I have had uh, where we have an interest in that kind of, of, uh, of beautiful production, that kind of artisanal production uh, that I, I hope that there are enough of people like us <laughs> who have that interest to keep at least some of these skills um some of these skills going and um and that they they won't be comp- they won't they won't all have swan songs but that there will be there will be a continuation uh, of places like Charvet. And if, and I think, and and I think we also see the, the birth of, of businesses, like I mentioned earlier, like Drake's, mm-hmm. uh, which has, which has to some degree kind of stepped into that, that traditional clothier mm-hmm. model with its own spin on things, but they, they do things, uh, kind of like, uh, an old englander or a, yeah. a salka or something like that
1: and they're attuned to changes and trends and developments um they they always have interesting new 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 styles and quirks i mean you know who would have thought that the time maker drakes 20 years ago would be doing things like selling you know french chore jackets and 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 knitwear and, and all kinds of other things now um, and i think that's that's very helpful to the staying power of a brand, um, and a brand like Drake's cares about integrity too.
0: You've self-published this book. so It's, it's clearly a, a labor of love for you. What, what prompted you
1: to write this? So, um, I think, uh, that's very fairly put, uh, perhaps with emphasis on the labor, um, looking (laughs) back, it was seven years of, um, sort of at times, excruciating, um, writing and rewriting and, and research what prompted me to write it. Um, I think it's sort of, it sort of is a natural result of, uh, Um, A direction that I'd been heading in and I guess something that I'd wanted to do but never admitted to myself um, from and post-college which is I wanted to write and um, college is very good at breaking down your you know um, your pretensions about being good at anything academic on a level um, that that can, you know, on, on, a, on a level that that isn't at the sophistication of what you come up against um, when you're actually needing to analyze and and uh, work on things at with a, with a degree of depth that you just don't as say a bright high schooler, so that my, my dreams of, you know, being on a literary magazine in college and whatever else and writing kind of got buried under a lot of shame about a lack of sophistication in my writing as well as very justifiable critiques from, you know, professors when I wrote papers about um, the need to write more clearly, the need to stop writing with so much ornament, the need to actually say something and a lot of things that, you know, um, like, a, like, like, like so many things at college have a steep learning curve. And in the course of all of that, um, I, you know, I, I um, got a degree in comparative literature, but I could not write creatively for the most part after that for years. Um, and it was something that I wanted to do in terms of both expression and examination, um, but was not able to do any focused way um, until um, until a few years after leaving the clothing forums around 2010, um, Will Bulky of A Suitable Wardrobe invited me to write now and then on on the blog that he had started on his website. Um, And um, that became uh, a regular occurrence and gave me an outlet and a soapbox and um, a feeling that there were people who actually wanted to read what I wrote and that I could be also um, self-indulgent about how I wrote as I wanted to be, which was nice. and over the course of writing for, for that website, um, several years later, a literary agent contacted him looking for me to, to ask if, if I had any books under my belt that I was interested in trying to publish. And I didn't at the time, but I told him to, you know, give me a little bit and I would think of ideas and looking at what I had written up to then, I had the idea of writing something about various um, various French makers and stores and whatnot that I'd talked about in in the suitable wardrobe blog, um, but the way that I'd written about them in these eight hundred or thousand word pieces, obviously, was not the same as as what would make up the, the body of an actual book length book. And so I, I had this, this sort of unsculpted um, seed to begin with, sorry to be murdering metaphors, <laughs>
0: um,
1: but I needed some time and reflection before I could actually do anything with it. And so that, that was back in 2014. Um, in 2015, I uh, took some time and figured out how I wanted to shape this and went back and actually did a lot of research on the various places that I was writing about um, and came up with uh, a coherent set of chapters about these various places that you know, took as its starting point, these blog posts, but was much more in depth. And then by the time that I had something that was um, more or less a, a, an unedited book, uh, my agent had left the business, unfortunately. But I, uh, yeah. Um, And, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it's a difficult world to penetrate. I'm sure that people who have been published have a different perspective on it but um you know that happened in 2016 i found out that he left the business in december 2016 and wasn't able to give me any pointers uh in 2017 i spent a lot of time trying to shop the book to other agents including at book fairs and such and had some initial interest but learned that you know that the concept and the, the the theme was not one that was immediately accessible or saleable to an agent. Um, one of them actually wrote back to me and, you know, kindly said that she liked what I'd written, but that she wondered whether books were going to be a trade as endangered as someone who made custom shoes, like a writer <laughs> in the book. Um I, you know, it it was an interesting comparison. I think, you know, whatever's happening in publishing, there's obviously you can go to the bookstore every week and there'll be dozens of new titles out there. Oftentimes on lots of fascinating topics, but I think it can be very, very hard to get a foot in the door. And at least in the States, there's several layers of difficulty and complication in that it's very hard to get the attention of an agent. And once you have an agent, you then need to shop your proposal to different publishers in the hope that one of those will uh, will want to pick up your book. So it's, um, you know, finding an agent is not nearly the entire battle. Um, I'd spoke to, I'd spoken to friends in France who, um, told me that, you know, it isn't quite the same way there. You don't really deal with literary agents. You deal directly with publishers. Um, and they suggested that, you know, I consider doing that with the book. Um, but by that time, I think I felt that where I wanted to go with this was just, Bringing it to, um, bringing it, bringing it to a final form as soon as I could because what I write about changes and things get stale, people die, shops close, and so I didn't want to start that search over again. I also didn't want to go through the calculus of figuring out whether. French publishers would want to take a fly on something that was written in English and I didn't want to go through the headache of trying to translate what I had written um, because I've done translation before and that's, it's super difficult to actually get something that reflects what its author wants it to, to look like and sound like and you can go nuts trying to choose. The right word, especially when you're a control freak over that kind of thing. Like <laughs> I am. Um, so, you know, during that time, I um, did share the book with friends who had been published. One of them um, very wisely recommended that I uh, work with an editor who did a lot of work firming up the book and the way that it's written. So, you know, for people who have had nice things to say about how it's written, a lot of that comes from her and um you know her telling me anything from pointing out where i repeat myself because as much as i might have tried you know there were places where i would write the same thing in different chapters um as well as her just pointing out things that were not working narratively and um so what came out of that was a much more sculpted publication Um, And then in the last instance, I realized that the book, uh, you know, no matter how well written it could be, needed visuals, um, even if those visuals were not much better than mediocre in some cases. So I took the step to um, at least have photographs in the book of some of the things that I write about. Because I think that otherwise no matter how well you describe, you know, the, the Parisian lapel notch, or the, you know, the the shape of the beveled waist of a shoe or the you know the strangeness of a medieval printed cashmere scarf, um, it doesn't really come out unless you actually have something that that makes clear what these things are and what makes them stand out.
0: No, I think that the I think that the photographs are a, a, an absolute must for this book because it, it you are talking a lot about a lot of uh, I guess obscure type uh, type things and they are uh, you know they're visually based they're they're objects and especially if you're talking about say Hilditch and Key uh, printed scarf for example that's something. Yeah. That if you as you read about, you want to see it uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and and get an idea of what you're talking about. And of course, as you talk about in the book, it the immediate. Just using those as an example, the thing that jumped out at me immediately was, you know, this looks just like something Drakes would do, and mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously, uh, very intentionally. But I know that it has to be frustrating for somebody like you uh, working on this book because as you pointed out there's you know all these books coming out and there are a lot uh, as you also see a lot of style books coming out and a lot of those well aren't so great and a lot of those are are very transitory i mean i i, I feel like that this book is is a book that sure anytime you're talking about uh, you're talking about stores, and, and especially stores that are sometimes just kind of on their last legs, that those are going to go away. But that's kind of the point of your book. I feel like that the, the point you're making here is going to endure uh, in a substantive way. And really, uh, from, from my own humble opinion here, this is the kind of book that really ought to be put out by somebody like Rizzoli or somebody like that, uh, because it, it really deserves that kind of presentation. But I'm very glad that you took the step uh, to to publish it and bring it out because it's something that really that really does need to get out there. And and I've got I own a number of of uh, style style and fashion and men's clothing books as I know you do, and this is really different from any any of those. There's not anything quite like this um, that that kind of looks at at the history of of what was lost and uh in in some instances still endures at least in in one form or another. So I think it's a I think it's a unique book and um and we we can wish that it had been brought out differently but we are glad that it was brought out at all because it it is uh it is extraordinarily interesting, I think.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um there's there's so much that I want to respond to in that too and then I know that sometimes I get so much on my mind in terms of what I want to say that I end up forgetting everything, Um, but it'll come back. Um, I think one thing that very much comes to mind when you you talked about, you know, the nature of the clothing books out there, there's always new clothing books on the shelf when you go to the bookstore. And certainly recently, there's been a really interesting um, flowering of books about men's clothing in particular, Um, you know, stuff about things that I don't know that much about, like sneaker freaking and, and, um, you know, other, other styles of clothing that I just never really was into. But there certainly were times when checking the bookshelf at my bookstore on clothing and seeing what had been, what had been put out for, um, you know, for that week or that month just made me so frustrated. And the one that (laughs) really comes to mind is in 2015, the menswear dog book, where the guy who had a blog where he dressed up his Shiba Inu in, in various outfits and then came out with a book where he put together a bunch of photos of those outfits and I guess diagrammed them Um, that just made me see red and maybe think, (laughs) what does that damn dog have that I don't have? And of course, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that, that a book like that has that have an immediate hook. Um, for one, it's extremely visual and it was already uh, a known quantity on social media. Um, so yes, there was interest in a mentor dog book. Um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, Glad to hear you say what you said about my book, and you know the the very quirky and perhaps small niche that it that it may fill. Um, I think you know one of the things to help to help understand why coming out with this took seven years is that you know it felt so laborious because the time that I gave to work on this was the free time that I might have had at the end of a week at night or, you know, at the end of leave time that I'd taken. So whenever I, whenever I needed to find time to work on the book, I would have to budget that into um, whatever vacation time I might have taken or um, whatever, whatever time I might find at, at, um, you know, the tail end of a Friday or a Saturday, um, since I have a day job and I'm a parent, and so you know, anything that I did for the book came out of the other uh, time that I had for the commitments of my life, and so even if writing was an outlet for me, working on the book and the longer that it took, you know, to to work on it, it became in itself this um, monkey on my back, um, uh, because the longer the longer it took to actually finish with it, the more of a burden it, it felt like. And when it came time to illustrate it, I mean, I took some I took some some of my summer vacation and got out a camera, got out. Um, you know, various of the things that I'd accumulated and, you know, m- try to make them, uh, try, to, try to justify my my accumulating them by photographing them and setting them up in order to illustrate the various things in the book. Um, which, you know, I, I have those Berluti peacock loafers you mentioned um, in in an email before this, and I have not actually worn them around, but they they came out for the book. I, I think I just need to find a grand <laughs> enough occasion to do it.
0: Well, uh, clearly your your collection of all of those things over the years has been vindicated by the book. So there's no need. You don't have to justify any of that anymore. <laughs> it was all it was all for the for the grand purpose. And and honestly, you've you regardless of how much labor it took to bring the book out, you have you have the highest uh, praise and justification you need is because Bruce Boyer gave you an endorsement on the back of the book so really uh, if you can make Bruce Boyer happy you've done a whole lot I feel like
1: he's he's a very nice guy and uh, he'd been in contact with me um, ever since I reviewed um, one of his books true style when it came out a few years ago and um, was just very gracious and then very encouraging when I told him that I was writing this thing and he even let me burden him with um, with an earlier draft of it and and was very effusive. So, um, uh, I was, I was really happy when, uh, when he agreed to blurb it. Um,
0: so, um, yeah. Well, Bruce Boyer, uh, a copy of Elegance, and I talk about this in an earlier podcast episode, but, but, uh, a remaindered copy of Elegance is what started me as an undergraduate along the, the dangerous paths of men's clothing many, many years ago. So, uh, so I have appreciated Bruce Boyer all of these years. and I uh, certainly want to point people uh, to your book and mm-hmm. uh, you can where, where can folks uh, where can folks pick it up? I, I got mine from Amazon. Is that the, is that the place to go?
1: Um, I think for now it definitely is the easiest place to obtain it. Um, it's, it's available both in physical form as well as in ebook form um, on Amazon. There were some autographed copies for sale at No Man Walks Alone on its website, although they may have run out, and I need to uh, talk to Greg over there to see if he wants to uh, carry any more of those. Um, it's, it's available for wholesale, but I'm not sure if it's actually been picked up and, 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 and retailed elsewhere. So um, Amazon is, again, for better or for worse, the, uh, the easiest place to find it. Well, I absolutely do recommend
0: it, and it is uh, it is a it's a fascinating exploration. It's part uh, you say not quite memoir, but memories. But uh, it, it is uh, I think I think you are the only person who could have written this book, <laughs> and uh, uh, and you have as as you mentioned, we've known each other for al- almost a couple of decades now. You have been my go to for uh, obscure sartorial questions that i've had all along that have stumped me uh wh- where did this come from i know i know who to ask and so i w- <laughs> i would i would send you an email or a message uh asking about it so you um uh, you have ev- far more uh sartorial arcana in your brain than than is ev- even shown in this book so uh i i certainly uh i certainly encourage uh folks to give it a try and i appreciate reginald jerome you being on
1: thank you so much um definitely don't sell yourself short um i've been in awe of your ability to find incredible vintage um, and so it's definitely been it's been an interchange and a dialogue between us uh for uh, i think about 19 years now well um, we'll keep it going another
0: couple of decades at least definitely
1: definitely <laughs>